All right, good morning, everybody. First, before I start, let me just say how wonderful I think service was last week. Wendy and I were live streaming uh, while we were on our uh, little mini vacation. And uh, just want to thank all of the young people who uh, came together, who uh, basically put the uh, service together. Uh, we definitely want to thank uh, Becky Shank, who is not here this morning, but uh, just gave a wonderful, uh, wonderful message last week. So thank you for that. Uh, Wendy and I had a great time in Boston after we uh, got to the hotel. Before we got to the hotel, we got rear-ended. <laughs> and uh, all right, so my bumper's kind of hanging off a little bit, but it's all right. It's, it's, it's wedged in pretty tight. I don't think it's going to fall off yet. But uh, after we got there, we had a great time, uh, visited a whole un a lot of, of places. And it was interesting because um, we went, and how many of you have ever been to Boston? All right, so most of you, if you've been to Boston, you've heard of the Freedom Trail, right? And uh, Wendy and I went and we uh, kind of walked the, the Freedom Trail. We didn't stop at every single place, but we stopped at a lot of places along the way toward uh, the, uh, the one church, um, not the old North Church, the other one, um, and just kind of, uh, Wendy faced her fears and actually climbed up into the belfry. And uh, so if you, need, if you need proof of that, uh, there's a picture, I think, of Wendy next to the bell. Um, and it was one of those places where uh, you, didn't, you really didn't feel that free. It was so very confining. And uh, they actually told you to, when you climb up, there's steps, but the ste climb the steps like you're climbing a ladder. So just kind of like do one of these things. But it was, it was fun. It was a great time. And uh, we want to thank you for allowing us the time to get away and uh, just enjoy each other. Um, enjoy some, some time to kind of relax just a little bit. But tomorrow, most Americans will be celebrating Independence Day. Everybody knows Independence Day. This, is, this commemorates July 4th, 1776, when 56 men from 13 colonies got together and sent King George a breakup letter. They said, Dear George, it's not working for us anymore. We're going to break up with you. We're going we're to go off on our own. We're going to become independent. Because George was a little abusive. Well, George was a lot abusive, really. And I want to read the first part of the Declaration of Independence this morning because, let's be honest, how many of us have actually read the Declaration of Independence. We probably did it when we were in fifth grade and have never done it since, right? But some of us have never really read anything past the first couple of sentences. And I'm, I'm just gonna read those this morning, but I think it's important that we have some idea of what these 56 men thought independence looks like. So we start out, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And then, of course, we get to the real purpose 
of this declaration. We hold these truths, and we all know this one, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are the big three, right? Those are the ones we hear about. Those are the ones that we, that we fight for, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and, and of course, People who sent King George this breakup letter didn't think that he was allowing them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the authors of the Declaration talk about the rights of the people to abolish a tyrannical government, and they go on to list all of the abuses and usurpations committed by King George of England, and we're not going to read all of that this morning, although we could. It would be fun. I'm a, a little bit of a historian, so I like to read those things. But if you've never read the Declaration of Independence, I encourage you to do so at least one time. Just read all of the things that they were, you know, well, George would say they were complaining about. What are, the, what are these colonists whining about now? Oh, we kill them and then don't charge the person that killed them with murder. So what? Right? But I think you'll find some very interesting things in the Declaration of Independence. But there's one thing that you're not going to find in the Declaration of Independence, with the exception, and we go back, we can go back here, to, with the exception of this idea of nature's God, and with the idea of the Creator, there is not one mention of God or religion in the Declaration of Independence. And I mention this because there are a lot of Christians who believe that the United States was founded primarily to ensure religious freedom. We are going to come, we're going to worship the way we want, and we're going to be a Christian nation. And that may have been the reason for some people coming over here in the 1620s, you know, on the Mayflower and the other boats that were bringing them over. They, they were escaping religious persecution. King George had created his own church. Well, actually, he hadn't created it, but he was in charge of it now, right? But the, the Church of England was created, and um, it tended to abuse its power quite a bit. And these people, some of them said, we want to go, we want to worship God the way that we think God ought to be worshipped. But a lot of other people didn't care about religion. They didn't care about worshiping God in the way that they wanted to worship. They were coming because they were trying to escape poverty. And they were looking for a place where they could get good land cheap and start over. A lot of people were coming just to find work on that land. They weren't even interested in getting land. They were just interested in making some money. And if you read the governing documents prior to the Constitution, and, and, and there were a couple, they don't mention much about religion. Now one, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was written uh, just a month before the Declaration of Independence, mentions religion in its last section. It says that all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. And it does mention that we should have Christian forbearance and love and charity towards each other. That's all that there was. In the United States governing documents, charters of religion is mentioned sparingly. And I think that's a good thing. First, I'm not certain that we ought to be relying on a government to tell us when and where and how that we should worship God. 
I don't think we should be relying on government to tell us that we can worship God. When we do that, when we rely on the government to validate our ability to worship, we do so at our own peril. When we decide that we're going to let the government tell us, yes, you may go to church on a Sunday morning, and yes, you may sing songs, and yes, you may take communion, and yes, you may do this and you may do that. Well, it's great, right? Like right now, because we're here on a Sunday morning, and we're worshiping, and we're singing songs, and we're having communion. We're doing all those things. Great. What if the government said, no? What if the government said, you can't come to church on a Sunday morning? What if the government said, you can't sing songs in a church that mention anything about God or Jesus or the blood of the lamb or anything like that? And I think, I think about these things, because again, I, I, I've studied history, uh, I have a certification in social studies to teach in our schools, so I, I kind of study this stuff a little bit. And if you look at world history, when government gets involved in telling people what they can and cannot do, especially with regards to worshiping God, it, it gets dangerous, right? So we're seeing this right now. We're seeing the results of Supreme Court cases. And I would have to, I would venture to say, if I took a poll of the congregation, most of us are happy with the decisions that the Supreme Court has made over the last month. But what we don't think of is that government is a fragile, human construct. Laws are written by humans. Laws are changed by humans. And it seems to me that these things change on the whims of whoever happens to have the loudest voice at the time. Supreme Court decided a couple of weeks ago uh, by a 6-3 decision that a coach, a football coach, high school football coach, had the right to pray on the football field after the game. And Christians, how many of you were celebrating that this football coach was allowed by the government to pray on the 50-yard line? Guess what? In a year, in three years, in five years, in 10 years, that same government might throw that guy in jail. Why are we relying on government to tell us what we can and what we cannot do? And the question that I asked myself, I looked at this, this decision and the, my, of course my first, my knee jerk reaction was, yay, a win for religious freedom. But then I kind of took a step back and I asked myself, is this really a kingdom victory? And I truly have to wonder, especially after reading a lot of the social media posts from people 
with whom I work and with whom I live and with whom I do life and have regular interactions with them, I, I have to wonder, is this a kingdom victory? Because I feel like this issue hasn't brought us together. It continues to tear us apart. The reactions by Christians to this Supreme Court decision, like the one to allow this guy to pray, like Roe versus Wade, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, do not serve to build the kingdom of God in any real way. And I believe that it has served to create this, this chasm, this almost insurmountable distance, not just between Christians and non-Christians, but between Christians and Christians. And without the Holy Spirit's power, I feel like it's probably going to continue to be an impossible chasm to close. And I believe that much of what's going on with Christians in light of these things is unbiblical. I think Christians are, re are re reacting in an unbiblical way. Christians are celebrating the court's decision that a high school football coach can walk into the middle of the field and kneel down at the 50-yard line and pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 Jesus tells us this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners where they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Christians are very familiar with this passage. We have heard this passage preached and we've read this passage. It's probably one of the most read passages, the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of the most read sections of the Bible. And non-Christians are also familiar with this Sermon on the Mount and the things that Jesus says. And they like to quote this passage. And they like to tell Christians that they ought to be praying at church or at home, not at school or in government buildings or in gatherings. Well, Jesus says the hypocrites love to stand and pray at the street corners where they may be seen by others. And we need to ask ourselves, why are Christians fighting so hard to be allowed to pray in a public place when Jesus quite clearly tells us that we ought to be praying in private? when we ought to be praying, maybe in church, maybe at home, in our cars. Why are we fighting so hard to be able to stand up in the public square and pray? What are we hoping to accomplish? Apostle Paul says we're supposed to pray in spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul writes this to, this, to the church. This is a, an instruction to the church, but not so that we will fight for some arbitrary 
right given by the government to be able to pray in public. Paul writes that at the end of this passage, this is the end of a passage that starts put on the whole armor of God. This is the armor of God. How many of you are familiar with the armor of God passage? I've got a little bit of the armor of God right here on my arm, on my tattoo. Put on the full armor of God. Why does Paul tell us to put on the whole armor of God? Well, when we wear armor, obviously, it is because we are getting ready to go into battle with someone. We're going to go into battle with an enemy. Here's who Paul says the enemy is. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood means people. Flesh and blood means our neighbors. Flesh and blood means all of the people that we come into contact with every single day. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, we are not supposed to be at war with the people of this country. We're not. We are supposed to be at war with Satan. This is the same Satan that has lied to us, has tempted us, and has celebrated every time we act against God. That is who we are supposed to be fighting. It's the same Satan that lied to every human being on this planet. Every person that you run into, every person that you encounter, and I don't care who they are, and I don't care what they've done, they have done it because they were tempted by Satan and they were not able to fight that temptation. When we look at people, we gotta stop seeing their sin because when we're seeing their sin, what we're looking at is we're saying that person is Satan. Instead of that person is created by God. That person is a person that God wants to save. This is a person that God wants to redeem. He wants to rescue them from Satan's temptation, from Satan's sin. But all too often we look at people and we look at their sin and we say, that's who that person is. We're not at war against people. We're not supposed to be angry with people. We're not supposed to attack people. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to do everything that the Holy Spirit would have us do to reflect Jesus Christ. And guess what? The only people that I see Jesus going after, if you want to call it that, in the Bible are religious people. He's not going after the sinners. He's eating with them. He's drinking with them. He's hanging out with them. And he is showing them a better way. When Jesus starts criticizing anybody, it's religious people. And our hateful words 
And our hateful actions towards people will never, never convince someone that they are sinners who need God's grace and mercy to be forgiven. Never happen. Our hateful words and our hateful actions will never sound like good news. That's what the gospel means. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And specifically, it's the good news of Jesus Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that saves us. And when we're using words that are hateful, when we're using actions that are hateful, we are not preaching the gospel. And you can dress it up any way you want. We are not preaching the gospel. Well, Joe, what about Roe versus Wade? I mean, that's got to be a big victory, right? This is, we should be rejoicing that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. First, let me say this. I am not for abortion. So before anybody gets any ideas, I just want to let you know. I am not for abortion, except in the most extreme circumstances. There was a story that came out just the other day about a 10-year-old girl who was raped and got pregnant and is not allowed to get an abortion. I believe that little girl should have the opportunity to have an abortion. Because that little girl's body is not ready to go through pregnancy. In very extreme circumstances, I think that abortion is appropriate. I don't think that abortion is appropriate as a way to escape personal responsibility. But generally speaking, yes, I am not for abortion, but I think Roe v. Wade is a perfect example of why we shouldn't put our trust in the government. I mean, look at this span of years, 1973. But 49 years ago, seven out of nine Supreme Court justices at that time concluded that having an abortion was a right protected by the US Constitution. And now, 49 years later, Six of nine justices of the Supreme Court have reversed that decision in saying that abortion is not a constitutional issue, but that states should be able to decide whether or not the people in their state can get an abortion. And today there are 14 states that ha now have anti-abortion laws. They say you cannot have an abortion, some of them, in any case whatsoever, which is what is happening with this 10-year-old girl in Ohio. This is the government at work in your life. And now, of course, we've got, uh, Wendy was just telling me about businesses that, because uh, she's in HR, and she's telling me about businesses that are now paying for people to travel to states that have uh, abortion uh, rights so that they can get abortions. And now, of course, the legislatures are trying to make laws that will fine people if they travel out of state to go and get it. It's a mess. And we trust these people. I want to tell you something. Read a story the other day said that there are fewer and fewer people who profess belief in God in the United States. I think it's down to something like 68%, down from like almost 90% 50 years ago. 
right around the time of Roe v. Wade. What I think is happening is that people are less and less afraid to say, no, I don't believe in God. Which begs the question, 50 years ago, were they Christians in the first place? Or were they forced to admit, yes, I believe in God, so that they wouldn't be ostracized, so that they wouldn't be criticized, so that they wouldn't have to feel uncomfortable at family gatherings? Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and few there be that find it. As much as I hate to say this, and as much as you're going to hate me for saying this, the United States is not a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There are only Christians. And they live everywhere. They live here. They live in South America. They live in Africa. They live in Asia. Some of them at great peril to their own lives. We got it good. There's not a person in here that is fearing for their life right now, for being here on a Sunday morning. Go to China, where they literally have to sneak around. Towns have to share pages of one Bible that they send around to village, to village, to village because they fear that carrying a full Bible will get them shot and killed. But we are not a Christian nation. And can we see that? Can you see the inconstancy of government? Can you see the changes? 50 years, that's not a long time. It's less than a lifetime. And we've gone from abortion is legal. First it was illegal 50 years ago, then it was legal, and now it's not legal again 50 years later. What's it gonna be five years from now, or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now? Will my view on abortion change whether it's legal or not? Probably not. Will your view on abortion, change, even if the law is changed? Probably not. We need to start focusing on the things that are crucial. Government is created by humans, for humans, laws written by humans, and it's run by humans. And man, do humans love to argue over things. A friend of mine posted a meme the other day. I added a little bit to it. I don't even know if you're going to be able to see it. But this is the, the, the protest about na 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 na. And Batman wants to claim it for himself. Na 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 na. And the Joker wants to claim it for himself. Na 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 na. Hey hey. Right? 
And then, of course, there's, I think, Harry Potter. He's the British uh, person over here. He wants to claim it for the Beatles. Hey, Jude. Nah, 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 nah. We love to fight. We love to argue over everything. And we love to claim things for our side. Let's face it. Humans are not the most related, reliable, rational, or wise people sometimes. Now, paraphrase a comedian that I heard a long time ago. Think about how unwise the average person is and then realize that half of them are less wise than that. But guess what, church? That is nothing new. Solomon was King David's son. When he became king, God came to him in a dream and said, ask for whatever you want. Ask for whatever you want, Solomon. I'm going to give it to you. And Solomon could have asked for gold and silver. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for riches. Solomon asked for the wisdom to rule over God's people. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 4, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Egypt were the, supposed to be the smartest people, the most progressive people at the time. Solomon's wisdom surpassed all of Egypt. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man in the entire world. And near the end of his life, he wrote a book. He had already written like, I don't know, 1,300 proverbs, right? All this wise wisdom. At the end of his life, he wrote this book. It's called Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, we read this. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. This guy is full of himself. But look what he says next. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. How many of you have ever heard of the show Mad About You? Anybody remember this show? Like mid-90s, I think. It's about a husband and wife, right? Just their relationship. The husband is a nature documentary filmmaker. And he was kind of stuck for an idea. And he's not coming up with a good one, and he's not coming up with a good one. And then he learns that Yoko Ono is in town. And Yoko liked one of his movies from before, so he goes and he goes to see Yoko. And young people, Yoko Ono is the person that broke up the Beatles. <laughs> uh, the Beatles were a rock band from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> the 60s and 70s, no, we're not going to go there. Uh, <laughs> But the husband meets Yoko Ono, and she gives him advice. She says, this is what you should do for your next documentary. She says, film the wind. Not the effects of the wind. Not what happens when the wind. Film the wind. And he spends like two weeks. He goes on this like 
holistic fast. And he does all this, and he tries to film the wind, and of course he fails miserably because he can't see the wind. You can feel it, see the effect of it, but you can't see the wind. It's useless to strive after the wind. Even for us, we don't know which way the wind is going to blow. I'm out there on my deck trying to grill something, and I've got this little umbrella up that you know kind of keeps the, the sun off of my bald head. And you know, I'm trying to move the, the umbrella so that they, and I, I tilt it, and then of course the wind comes and blows it the other way, and sometimes it just blows it right up. I don't know where the wind is coming from. And Solomon says that his entire lifetime of striving after wisdom and understanding is the same as striving after wind. And he's not saying that it's stupid to seek wisdom. He's not saying, oh, I should have asked God for horses. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that God's wisdom is so far superior to our own. God's wisdom is so far superior to the wisdom of the humans who run our government and every other human being that we could not hope to attain even the smallest percentage of a fraction of God's wisdom. And finally, Solomon concludes his book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Stop trying to be the smart guy. That's hard for me. I'm a lifelong learner, man. I like to, uh, I, poor Wendy. But that's hard for me to stop learning. And he's not saying stop learning. What he's saying is this is the important thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. That sounds awfully familiar. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. We can translate that to fear God. And we're also told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's our democratic neighbor. That's our Republican neighbor, our pro-life neighbor, our pro-choice neighbor, our black neighbor, our Hispanic neighbor, our gay neighbor. We are supposed to love them. How can we as Christians follow the two most important commandments that Jesus told us about, love God and love your neighbor, if we consider half of our neighbor to be enemies, if we consider half of our neighbors to be undesiring or undeserving of God's love, undeserving of God's mercy, undeserving of God's forgiveness, that person will never change. I yell Bible verses in their face every single day and nothing happens. <laughs> How do we love them when we're yelling at them all the time? We go back to the beginning of this sermon. Government can't keep us from loving God. And government can't keep us from loving our neighbor, but it also cannot help us to love our neighbor. Only the Holy Spirit of God 
can help us to love our neighbor in the way that Jesus told us we should love them. Stop relying on government. Stop saying this is a Christian nation because every time you say that, you're going to be disappointed. You will. I've started saying, well, maybe this is a Christian nation, all evidence to the contrary. And I know I'm making some of you mad. I know some of you just want to go and have your hamburgers and hot dogs and watch your fireworks and then wave your flags. Woo! And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is, stop trusting government. Because government changes. People's minds change. And guess what? Eventually, you might be on the receiving end of what Jesus called persecution. Because one day, the government might say, all churches are closed. One day, the government might come and seize this building and use it for its own purposes. One day, the government might come and burn this building down. It's possible. We've seen it happen in history. Why do we think it's not going to happen here? Is that going to stop us from worshiping God? Oh, we don't have a church, I guess. Worshiping God is done. I don't have to get up on Sunday morning. Is that going to stop us from gathering? Is that going to stop us from praying? Is that going to stop us from hiding a Bible someplace if they start confiscating the Bibles? By the way, this is a really good uh, reason for you to memorize the Bible. <laughs> Everybody take a chapter, and then when we all get together, we can write it back down again. There are people that are on social media. They're like, if you don't agree with what I say, you can just unfriend me. And that's on both sides, man. It's, this is, it's, I... I had a discussion with a young lady this week about everything that's been happening with the Supreme Court and reactions of, of her friends on social media. And oh, my friends are telling me to unfriend me because they, I believe this way. They believe. And eventually, the, uh, I kind of steered the conversation towards government someday taking away our religious liberty, be able to gather, be able to go to church. And she just looked at me and she said, well, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that. And I told her she probably needed to think about it. And she's like, I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. Church, we got to think about it. We got to think about our faith. We got to think about what would we do if this country on a religious level turned into China? where religion is literally outlawed. What would we do? I'm just going to stop? I don't know the answer to that for any of you. I struggle with that answer for myself. What would I do? 
We have got to shore up our faith. We have got to be ready for persecution when it comes. We've got to. You know why? Because Jesus told us to expect it. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And I'm kind of like, thanks, Jesus. That's great. You know, tell me what to do about it. Jesus told us what to do about it. Die. That's what he told us to do about it. If you're persecuted, be ready to die for your faith. You've heard me say this before. God doesn't call us to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He calls us to death, servanthood, and the pursuit of holiness. That's what God calls us to. If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must die to ourselves daily. We must pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And when Jesus picks up his cross and we follow him, it's not to go to a yard sale. It's to go to die. If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, it means that we have to give up our personal rights in deference to him. Well, Jesus, I have the right to do this. Not if you're my follower. Not if you say you believe what I have said. We give up our personal rights. Guess what? We become servants. Paul even says we become slaves to Christ. And I know slaves, that's a big no-no to say in, in public anywhere. But that's what Paul says. He is a slave to Christ and he is a slave to others. We become servants of one another. And if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, it means that we put the things of the world behind us and we seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness above anything and everything else. I'm not here to tell you to not celebrate Independence Day. Go for it. Watch the fireworks. Do the sparklers. We're going to make hamburgers later because that's what Josh wants to have for dinner. Go for it. I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong for supporting our military. You're not wrong for supporting our military. I'm not even here to tell you that you shouldn't wear red, white, and blue. But as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Sometimes it's time to wear red, white, and blue and have a hot dog. For everything there is a time and a season. And that's not the birds. That's King Solomon that said that. For you young people, the birds were a 60s rock group. And they wrote a song based on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Go figure that one out. <laughs> Tomorrow is the day the United States declared independence from the tyrannical actions of a king. And it's okay to celebrate that our forefathers took a stand against tyranny. But don't let Independence Day overshadow Freedom Day. And when I say Freedom Day, I mean that that is the day that Jesus Christ set you free as you confessed your sins. As you accepted his work on the cross. That is your Freedom Day. Thank you. you are free from sin. 
like the songs we sang this morning. Your chains are broken. You're no longer sitting in a cell waiting to go to hell. That is your freedom day. What I am here to tell you though is this, do not make patriotism what you live for. Because eventually, this country will be something different than it is today. For some of us sitting here, especially some of us younger people, this country will not be something we want to be patriotic about anymore. Governments come and go. The love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ are constant. And those are what we should be focused on. Don't look to the government to comfort you. Look to God to comfort you. Make the kingdom of God what you're patriotic about. Pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom, regardless of what flag you might fly. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We do thank you that we live right now in a place where we can come and go as we please. We can come to church and we can sing and we can worship and we can carry Bibles and we can pray on a football field today. Father, help us to understand that the things that you call us to Help us to understand that the commandment to pray, that the commandment to read our Bibles, that the commandment to gather together and worship you are not negotiable regardless of who's in charge down here. And Father, I pray more than anything else this morning that you let the Holy Spirit help us to visit our faith the Holy Spirit will help us to understand what it is that you want from your people and that we will do those things above anything else. And Father, should the day come when persecution becomes the norm, I ask that you would give us the strength through the Holy Spirit to stand up under that persecution and to forever proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to take communion. And again, we talk about symbols of freedom. And most of us, when we hear symbols of freedom, we think about flags. We think about the colors, red, white, and blue. When I think about symbols of freedom, I think about Jesus Christ and the symbols that he gave us. Symbols that will remind us of what he has done and symbols that will remind us to remember his sacrifice on the cross and what it means. The bread represents his body. 
The cup represents his blood that was shed for us so that we might be free. We're going to take a few moments here this morning um, just in silent prayer. Ask God to strengthen your faith. If you've got sin that's unforgiven, ask him to forgive your sin. And when you are ready, the deacons will come forward. You can come forward, take the bread, take the cup, return to your seats, and then we will partake together. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed at a last supper with his apostles, after dinner, took a loaf of bread. First he blessed it, and then he broke it, he passed it around, and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And he asked them to eat the bread as a remembrance of his broken body. We do the same this morning, the body of Jesus Christ. also took a cup of wine. He blessed it. He passed it around. He told his disciples, drink this, all of you. This wine represents the new covenant that you have with God and that he has with you. And that new covenant is made possible through the blood that I will spill on the cross. Each time you drink this, remember that work, and remember that you are forgiven. Blood of Jesus Christ. The bread and the cup are symbols, much like the American flag is a symbol. But the blood and Jesus' body provide us with more freedom than any flag, than any constitution, than any government. Because Jesus died for us, we are free indeed. This morning we sang a song, and I'd like to ask you the questions from that song this morning. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil a victory win? Will you be free from your passion and pride? Would you do service for Jesus your King? That song, of course, is there's power in the blood. And the Holy Spirit gives us that power as you go out this week. I pray that you will remember, as we took communion this morning, the power of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he gives you over sin, the freedom that he gives you to live a life that is pleasing to God the Father and that leads 
to eternal life. God bless you.